Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a prize of Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part two in our summer series, Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Actually, I think I was just born dancing, and that's all I ever wanted to do in life. I know what you like. Now, why can't you be friendly? But I am being friendly. No, I mean it. Friendship's much more lasting than love. It's called, uh... Um. What's keeping you awake? Dreams. Bad dreams. I don't see how any home can be complete without children. I'm sorry this had to happen. No, you're going to listen. By mid-1928, after a wave of good reviews for her work in Todd Browning's The Unknown, Joan Crawford had floated into the female lead slot of a couple of college-set romances starring William Haynes. As we learned in our previous episode on Haynes, he would become one of Joan's best friends, and their friendship would last for decades. Joan's continued support of Billy Haynes would play a big part in his continued acceptance in the Hollywood community after he was ousted from MGM for being unrepentantly gay. Very early on in her time at MGM, Billy Haynes gave Joan a piece of advice that she would credit for helping her to separate herself from the pack of starlets with whom she was competing. This was back in the day when Joan was still Lucille and still living on a diet of black coffee in order to lose weight because a cameraman had told her she needed to. But there were a lot of skinny girls in town. She was going to need more than that. So Billy Haynes said, Every pretty girl here under contract at MGM wants to do exactly what you want to do. It's the big lottery. The producers here don't know one pretty face from another. 
So what you have to do is take yourself out of the lottery. The way to do that, Haynes said, would be to make sure the executives couldn't ignore her because they saw her everywhere. So under Haynes's tutelage, Joan started going to every party, every event, and anywhere she could be seen dancing. She'd tell the MGM publicity department about everything she did, and photographs were taken. And soon those photographs started appearing in newspapers and magazines with captions commenting on Joan's ubiquity. It was the rare case of supply breeding demand, and MGM came to understand that they had a commodity that people liked to talk about and wanted to see more of. Joan always made sure to credit Haynes's role in helping her figure out how to sell herself, and she was never shy about talking about their friendship or what he meant to her. But the movies they made together were not part of this conversation. At least two of those movies, West Point and Spring Fever, were fraudulent at their core. And not because they featured the all-but-openly-gay IRL Haynes romancing Crawford. In Spring Fever, the former Lucille Lesueur played a country club debutante. In West Point, she was a good-hearted townie who initially rejects Haynes for being too forward. In both films, she was a prize to be won. The thing that's fraudulent about this is that when you step back and look at the whole of Crawford's career and the way that she handled things on screen and off, You never think of her as being the prize that completes the man's story. It always feels like it's Joan Crawford's story, and that the romantic pairing completes her desire, even when the actual narrative of the film should favor the male point of view. She can't be the prize because she so firmly has her eyes on the prize. And certainly, right after Joan made those two Billy Haynes films... She snatched that brass ring, both in her professional life and personally. Join us, won't you, for part two of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford met her first husband for the first time on the lot at MGM, and she perceived him to be a snob. That was maybe to be expected. Joan Crawford was still a star who was so early into her journey up the totem pole that no one knew yet whether or not she'd even be able to maintain a foothold. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was the son of the king of Hollywood. Crawford changed her mind about Doug Jr. when she saw him in the play Young Woodley. She sent him a telegram praising his performance, knowing full well that stroking his ego was the way into a man's heart. I just thought he was delectable and wanted to get to know him better, if you know what I mean, Crawford later said. At the studio, he was cool and distant, and that made me angry. I wanted him to notice me. What better way to an actor's heart than through a telegram telling him he's wonderful? It did the trick. The telegram primed Doug for Joan's expert seduction. Quickly understanding that her new paramour was not as sophisticated as he pretended to be, Joan lured him by letting him believe that she was a damsel that he was winning over, and not the other way around. By the time Doug understood that Joan was hardly a sexual innocent, he had already fallen in love. As Joan remembered it later, it was spontaneous combustion. 
We couldn't get enough of each other in any way. We tried to keep our passion private, but we didn't do a very good job of it. He was the most attractive man I'd ever met, and he still is the most attractive man I've ever met. I held nothing back. I felt I'd found the one and only love of my life for a lifetime. By all accounts, Joan really loved Doug, but she was undeniably aware that he was a catch, and his background and his connections only made him more desirable to her. But to many of Doug's familial connections, Joan's background was a red flag. For Douglas Jr.'s biological mom, as well as his stepmom, Mary Pickford, Joan Crawford just didn't seem like the kind of girl one married. Putting aside what they may or may not have heard about Joan's actual sexual resume and reputation, she would have been seen as embodying trends in new womanhood, which women of a previous generation may have found worrisome. Joan's first big movie after she started dating Doug, and also the breakout hit of her early career, was Our Dancing Daughters, in which she played the ultimate flapper girl. Crawford's dangerous Diana likes to dance and drink and flirt, but at heart, she's a nice girl who respects her parents and is able to balance fun with virtue. But her friend Anne, played by Anita Page, is a backstabber and a gold digger who steals Diana's crush, played by football star-turned-actor Johnny Mac Brown. Anne dies in the end, and Diana survives. Based on Our Dancing Daughters, F. Scott Fitzgerald commented that Joan Crawford was, quote, doubtless the best example of the flapper, the girl you see at smart nightclubs, gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal, with wide, hurt eyes. It's that contradiction that's really remarkable. The girl gowned to the apex of sophistication with the remote expression, laughing with hurt eyes. And that's what Joan Crawford pulls off in this movie, The manic highs of scantily clad dancing and the silent devastation of watching the man she loves slip away. The empathy she brought to the part, paired with her enviable body and beauty and knack for using both in her characterization of the ultimate 1920s party girl, made Joan an icon of the generation of girls who just wanted to have fun while also dreaming traditional dreams of romance and respectability. As Joan frequently commented later, She was Diana. She was a wild party girl with a good heart, who wanted fun and excitement, who wanted to be adored by the hordes, but also wanted one good man to love. But in the wake of the success of Our Dancing Daughters, it was the flapper label that stuck to Joan, and this made her seem that much more undesirable to her boyfriend's family. But Doug's father would have been against his son marrying anyone, His problem with Joan wasn't that she was Joan. It was that he didn't feel great about it being public knowledge that he was old enough to have a son who was old enough to be marrying the starlet of the moment. Douglas Sr. had not been a major part of Douglas Jr.'s life. His first wife, and his son's mother Beth, said that Douglas Fairbanks, quote, did not have the instinct of being a father. 
unless I asked if he was going up to say goodnight to Douglas or unless somebody wanted to see the child. Senior displayed no interest in him. He didn't care. He was just bored. Mary Pickford and Doug had never had kids, not because she didn't want to, but because she had been rendered infertile by an abortion early in her first marriage. This was a source of heartbreak for the king and queen of Pickfair, but it also helped them maintain the illusion of youth, even as they were creeping into middle age. And around the time that his son was asserting his adult man prerogatives by entering into a serious relationship with Joan Crawford, Douglas Fairbanks Sr.'s career was at a precarious place. His era was on its way out. In 1929, 46-year-old Fairbanks starred in The Iron Mask, a major hit that was mostly silent, but included a few talky scenes. Fairbanks' stardom had been so tied up with his ability to innovate and to roll with the punches, literally and figuratively, taking what was thrown at him with grace and throwing charm and capability right back. But the rise of talkies brought on cultural shifts that threw even Fairbanks for a loop. As if sensing his time was passing, Fairbanks began to tell incredulous columnists that Iron Mask would be his second-to-last film. He wanted to make a movie with Mary, and then he'd hang it up. Both Fairbanks and Pickford had been stage actors before they had been movie stars, so they considered themselves well-equipped to star together in a filmed play. The Fairbanks-Pickford 1929 version of The Taming of the Shrew was the first filmed Shakespeare adaptation with spoken dialogue. Shrew was positively reviewed in the New York Times, but it didn't do well at the box office, and the experience of making it created an enormous strain on an already tenuous Fairbanks-Pickford marriage. Portraying Shakespeare's warring lovers was already a little too close to home for the superstar couple, but the very business-minded Mary was further annoyed by her husband's lack of professionalism on set. He didn't see why he should bother to learn his lines when he could read them off of a chalkboard. He also didn't understand why director Sam Wood insisted that a stunt in which Mary threw a chair at Doug's head, which couldn't be faked because there was no such thing as Foley sound then, had to be done twice. The film was released concurrently with a stock market crash, and audiences were as indifferent at the box office as Fairbanks had been on set. Fairbanks' main challenge in the new world of sound wasn't that he couldn't talk, but that he had built his whole career on a kind of rambunctious and ambitious visual storytelling that didn't adapt well to the process of making a talkie during the early days of sound, when the hidden microphones and lumberous recording equipment made a lot of movement very difficult to stage. Pickford's difficulties are a little bit more complicated to parse, because the dawn of the talkies coincided with the decision to change her star persona. She jumped from playing little girls to playing sophisticated women. It's impossible to know what was the chicken and what was the egg. Maybe she couldn't have gone on realistically playing innocence now that she'd be asked to speak as them, and that's why she chose to move into playing sexualized adult women in her first talkies. Her first sound film, Coquette, in which Pickford appeared for the first time, with her famous curls chopped into a modern bob in a bold signal of her entree into a new era, was a hit and it won Pickford the first Best Actress Oscar. 
But her subsequent attempts to apply her new, sophisticated talking persona met with diminished returns. As the 1930s went along, she'd be replaced in the public consciousness by a crew of new girls who better embodied both the scrappiness and the wish-fulfillment glamour of Depression-era dreams. Joan Crawford would be one of those girls. Even as far back as 1929, when Pickford and Fairbanks were bombing in The Taming of the Shrew, and Crawford was emerging as a sensation in Our Dancing Daughters, Pickford would have been completely justified in seeing her husband's son's girlfriend not just as a personal threat, but as a symbol of cultural and moral change, a harbinger of doom to Pickford's entire way of life. It didn't help that the Fairbanks-Pickford marriage was falling apart, and that that, too, may have had something to do with Mary's change in persona. As Doug Jr. put it, Mary Pickford was in love with my father. My father was in love with Mary's character on the screen. He liked her girlish innocence. There was nothing girlish about Joan Crawford, and in fact, shortly before her first marriage, she confided in her soon-to-be husband her worry that he would leave her when he found out about something particularly adult buried in her past. There have long been rumors that Joan Crawford appeared in some kind of porno film before she came to Hollywood. In Bob Thomas's biography of Crawford, while ultimately remaining skeptical over the existence of the film, Thomas declared that this film, which probably didn't exist, was called The Casting Couch, and that it was made, if it was made, in 1918 or 1919. IMDb has a listing for a film called The Casting Couch made in 1923, and a user-submitted summary contends, Joan Crawford has a very small role as a seductive amateur actress named Gloria. This IMDb entry given the general reliability of IMDb user-submitted information, should probably be considered better evidence that this film doesn't exist, and or that Joan Crawford did not perform sex acts in it, then should it serve as confirmation that it does exist, or that she did. Other biographies include mentions of other films, by titles like Velvet Lips, She Shows Him How, and Coming Home. Most biographies of Joan Crawford contend that these films probably never existed, while many books on MGM and classical Hollywood scandals contend that not only did at least one film exist, but that its existence was frequently used to keep Joan in line and encourage her to obey her studio contract to the letter, lest embittered executives expose her sordid past. According to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., at least one film did exist. Or at least, that's what he said Joan told him. Joan, he said, quote, was absolutely terrified that I would find out about a film she had made when she was in a financially desperate moment. When she told me about it, as we began to be very involved, she said, I have to tell you in case it makes a difference. I tried to get as many details from her as possible, especially as to what she wore or didn't wear in the film, and specifically what she did in the film. But I only got tears. I've always found a woman's tears a powerful weapon. I could more easily face a duel in a film or a real-life naval battle in World War II. Before a woman's tears, I've always felt helpless and frustrated. 
So much for Douglas Fairbanks Jr., investigative reporter. Anyway, he didn't care that his beloved had probably been in a blue movie. He asked her what he could do to help her. She told him that she was being blackmailed by a guy who claimed to have a copy of the movie. She hadn't seen the movie, but she knew it would be at best an embarrassment for her. And of course, it could be much worse. Douglas told her to tell the blackmailer that her husband would be dealing with the matter from here on out. When the guy called the next time, Doug remembered, I took the phone and told him it would be thrash instead of cash. The blackmailer backed off, and according to Doug, the whole thing brought him and Joan closer because she viewed him as her protector. Doug believed that the blackmailer probably didn't have a copy of the movie, and that's why he backed off so easily. But that Joan's reaction revealed that there was a movie to worry about. And Doug would acknowledge that he and she tried to find a print of it to buy and destroy. Crawford and Fairbanks starred together in the actress's final silent film, Our Modern Maidens, in 1929. After they finished shooting, the couple headed to New York to get married. 25-year-old Crawford shaved four years off of her age on the marriage license, so as to not seem like too much of an older woman to her 20-year-old groom. The elder Fairbanks and Ms. Pickford did not attend the wedding. The newlyweds were informally ostracized from Pickfair. Essentially, they were just not invited to parties at Doug's dad's house, although it's unclear to me how much time Doug Jr. even spent there pre-Crawford. So they started their own Pickfair, nicknaming their much more modest mansion El Jojo, a contraction of their first names. There, they threw their own parties. Around this time, Joan made her first real talkie, Untamed, a very strange pre-code screwball comedy in which she plays a girl raised in the jungle with savages who suddenly becomes an oil heiress. Her prospector father's best friends take her to Manhattan, where she starts throwing parties for all of the other 20-year-olds with too much money and nothing to do. The fish-out-of-water portion of the movie is relatively short. Savage Joan astounds stuffy passengers on the boat from South America to New York by setting her sights on a young playboy, declaring that they are in love and seeing no problem with showing up at his room late at night. It's not as scandalous as it sounds. In fact, the centerpiece of this part of the movie is a musical number in which the two lovebirds sing as Joan plays an acoustic guitar under movie moonlight in front of a charmingly primitive rear projection. There's something in this scene and in the whole of Joan's quote-unquote savage performance that's like the unknown DNA of the manic pixie dream girl. But then the film flashes forward, and we see a new Joan, resplendent in gowns and diamonds, the rough edges sanded off of her accent. She's still in love with that pretty boy, played by Robert Montgomery, and the conflict of the rest of the film involves him trying to earn enough money to match Joan's dowry, and finally getting over himself and allowing Joan to financially support him. This is how Joan wanted it to be in real life. Once her transformation was finished, once she became the fully cooked version of herself, you didn't see the stitches. The rest was utopian. A woman declaring what she wants, and then waiting while the paradigm shifts around her. 
If nothing else, Joan Crawford in the late 1920s and early 1930s was a symbol that change was happening, and you could catch up, or you could be left behind. The previous generation of stars looked at girls like Joan and assumed they'd be flashes in the pan, that even if the month that they were the flavor of seemed to last more than a mere 30 days, eventually they'd step in it and fall off the cliff. Similarly, most people were skeptical of the Crawford-Fairbanks marriage. Presuming she was a gold digger, they figured it wouldn't last. This may be why it took Doug and Mary a full year before they invited Doug's son and his new wife to pick fair. They were waiting for the marriage to fail, and when it didn't immediately do so, they opened their doors as a reward. Soon the younger Mr. and Mrs. Fairbanks became frequent guests of the groom's parents. The two Douglas Fairbankses started developing a real relationship for the first time in their lives. And Crawford, of course, was pleased to be allowed into Hollywood's most exclusive living room. But she felt like she never fit in. By the time we finally got the summons, she remembered later, I felt like telling them what they could do with it. But she didn't. Joan and Doug would go to Doug and Mary's famous movie nights, where they'd show prints of films that had not yet opened to the public in their screening room at Pickfair. Doug remembered that one night, Joan and he were seated together on a chaise lounge, and when the lights went down, instead of watching the movie, they settled in for what he called a good cuddle. They were totally oblivious to the room around them, but of course, everybody could tell what was going on. After the movie, Doug's dad pulled his son aside. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. told Douglas Fairbanks Jr. that his conduct had disgraced both Fairbanks men, the very name of Fairbanks, and the reputation of Miss Crawford, and that if he were ever to behave in such a way again, he would no longer be welcome at Pickfair. Joan had a more melancholy memory of Pickfair. Years later, Joan recalled being at one of those movie nights, looking around the room at women with soft, white hands, and thinking about her time growing up in a laundry, her years doing manual labor in order to keep attending school with rich girls who looked down on her. Joan would assume that the beautiful women with soft hands at Pickfair had never done a load of laundry in their lives. And then Joan would feel small. Joan would be so nervous that she started taking along her knitting so that she would have something to do with her shaking hands. This became a habit, and later, the fact that Joan would always be seen knitting in the middle of parties was interpreted by others as a sign that she was standoffish, a sign that she didn't care about socializing and had better things to do. At least at its inception, the opposite was true. Joan knitted at parties because she was so insecure. Many of the films that Joan Crawford made during this period reflected her status as a gorgeous, glamorous woman who was allowed into the inner sanctum of the elite. But once she got in, she would be made to feel as though she didn't really belong. This was the pre-code era, the period between the dawn of talkies and the regulation of plots and dialogue that would come with the enforcement of the production code in 1934. And movies of all genres during this scant half-decade would be tinged with the illicit. Jones started frequently playing women who used their beauty and sexuality to get what they wanted, 
in films which usually suggested that these sorts of assets were a broke woman's best chance of class advancement. The movies seem to have empathy for the women who are forced into these situations without ever really dealing with the fact that a system which welcomed the exchange of female sexuality for goods, services, and sustenance did more to benefit men than women. The best of these movies, artistically, if not politically, may be Possessed, a gorgeously filmed melodrama in which Joan plays Marion, a broke-ass factory girl who is tempted to seek her fortune in the big city by a drunk playboy who strikes up a conversation with her at a train stop. When she shows up at his Manhattan door, the playboy barely remembers her, but at his place she meets a lawyer named Mark Whitney played by Clark Gable, in one of the eight movies he and Crawford starred in together. Gable and Crawford's characters fall in love, but the relationship they embark on is built on a shared deception. Still reeling from being left by his first wife, Mark refuses to marry again, but he buys Marion an apartment and a new wardrobe, and to cover for her being his mistress, they pretend she's a widow, living off of a large inheritance from her dead husband. Years pass, and then Mark runs for governor. Marion is forced to realize that she's just a mistress, and in order to avoid being a liability for the man she loves, she leaves him. But when the truth comes out at a big political rally, Marion makes a statement that their relationship is over. She runs out into the rain, and he follows. I don't care what they do to me back there. If I win, it'll be with you. And if I lose, it'll still be with you. The marketing of movies like Possessed was not shy in implying that they were subtextual prostitution parables. Although clearly, Possessed itself redeems its version of the exchange of sex for money by suggesting that such an arrangement could lead to real, once-in-a-lifetime love, and that the selfishness that inspired it could transform into a kind of self-sacrifice. Occasionally, money was a motivator for Joan's sexuality in a different way. In Montana Moon, a really weird western-slash-musical-slash-pre-code-culture-slash-farce-slash-marriage melodrama which Crawford made in 1930, she plays the carefree socialite daughter of a land baron. And the fact that she's never had to worry about money is implicitly tied into her liberation and sexual freedom. After feeling bad about stealing a man away from her frumpy friend one too many times, Joan's character also named Joan, stumbles onto the campfire of a hunky but slightly dim-witted lug of a cowboy, played by Joan's Our Dancing Daughters co-star Johnny Mac Brown. She seduces him, and the next thing you know, she's bringing her new fiancé home to meet her father, who happens to own the ranch where the cowboy works. Certain cuts were made to Montana Moon at the request of the Hayes office, but these were mostly to cut depictions of drinking in violation of prohibition. With the code not yet in full effect, the movie that was released is, amongst other things, a showcase for the incredibly beautiful young Joan Crawford in full-on man-eater mode. For most of the running time, the only things this movie's heroine cares about are screwing and partying, and her conflicts with her working man-husband, though rooted in class are mostly about her refusal to be demonized for flirting, dancing, staying out all night, and looking fabulous and expensive shit all the while. While totally indulging in Joan's behavior, the movie sort of can't help but take the point of view of her drippy new hubby, because Joan's decadence is so absurd one year into the Depression, 
and she has to turn her back on that decadence in order to complete the narrative. In this way, Joan remains a girl of the people, even as she's playing the 0.1%. Having pioneered the fun-loving, sexually liberated, and commodification-minded new female in early talkies, Joan Crawford made that archetype respectable by playing a version of her in one of the biggest films of 1932. Grand Hotel was a star-studded drama which was uniquely of its time, in that it showed exactly what MGM could do that other studios couldn't. The story of a number of people whose lives intersect in an old-world Berlin hotel over the course of a single night, Grand Hotel is a movie about nothing, whose only reason to exist is to show off the kind of star power that only MGM could provide. The ensemble cast includes Joan as a stenographer who, in search of a rich husband on the job, encounters potential suitors in Wallace Beery and both Lionel and John Barrymore. Here she is, flirting with the latter Barrymore. Oh, you're a little stenographer. Yes, I'm a little stenographer. <laughs> That's fascinating. I don't suppose you'd uh, take some dictation from me sometime, would you? Well, uh, how about some tea, then? Tea would spoil my dinner. Only have one meal a day, and I'd rather hate to spoil it. In that pause before he downshifts to asking her out for tea, Crawford gives Barrymore the most incredible side eye. But then she tells him that she's broke, heavily implies that she relies on the kindness of male companions to keep herself stylishly outfitted, and agrees to go out with him the following night. What time tomorrow? Five o'clock downstairs. Where downstairs? In the funny yellow room where they dance. <laughs> You're funny. Tomorrow? Of course. Really? We'll uh, dance. Hmm? All right. We'll dance. Hmm? <laughs> Crawford and Barrymore both infuse the word dance with such thickly winking double entendre that it's basically just entendre. This was typical of pre-code films, which may include nothing censorable at script level, but an execution would all but topple over to make sure the audience understood what was really being said. Here, Crawford's young lady is presented as classy, savvy, and skilled, and yet she's even more blatantly a gold digger, who is even more flagrantly eager to exchange sex for favors than many of the ostensibly more desperate women she had played before. The thing is, Joan feels like the heroine of the movie because its other female lead, Greta Garbo, gives a performance that's not just unlikable, it's almost incomprehensible. If you've never seen a Greta Garbo movie, start with Ninochka or Matahari or one of the John Gilbert Silence. Don't start with Grand Hotel. Greta Garbo's career was by no means over in 1932, but when you see her swoony, overdramatic performance in this film juxtaposed with Joan's snappy, sleek, completely casual-seeming presence, it's hard not to feel like you're looking at a woman of an era past competing with the girl of the future. Greta Garbo's thing was that she was a martyr. She sinned, and then she died. Joan Crawford survived. Crawford would consider Grand Hotel to be the greatest film she ever made, and it definitely had the biggest impact of any picture of the first half of her career. 
She walked into Grand Hotel an ingenue, and she came out of it a star. Grand Hotel won the Best Picture Oscar in November 1932, making it the only film to ever win Best Picture without receiving a single other nomination, a victory that seems like an abomination when you consider that it beat the highest-grossing film of 1932, the Marlena Dietrich-starring Shanghai Express. By that time, Joan Crawford had moved into a new echelon, and she had pretty much fully left Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in the dust. When Joan left for the location shoot of the Somerset Mom adaptation Rain on Catalina Island, she asked her husband not to follow. This was ostensibly because she was so unsure about the difficult role, but really, she was unsure about their marriage. She had come to understand that she and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. only really had one thing in common. As she later put it in her inimitable style, in real estate, they say, location, location, location. In our relationship, it was sex, sex, sex. That was what we had in common. Their background was getting in the way of their attraction to one another, but not in the ways you might expect. In fact, Doug would have been happier if Joan had been a more traditional gold digger. He frequently suggested that she quit working and let him support the two of them, which was something Joan had no interest in at all. As ambitious as an actress could be, Joan found it hard to relate to her husband's lack of drive. Doug didn't know anything about struggle. He'd never wanted for anything. He knew so little of the world outside his tiny sphere and didn't seem all that interested. No wonder he was content. But I wanted it all. It almost seems inevitable that Crawford's success would rub Fairbanks the wrong way. He was still a son competing with his father. He didn't need to be competing with his wife, too. In Joan's eyes, her first husband had married a chorus girl, and after she had fully transformed herself into a star, he missed the chorus girl. Though there were traces of Joan's real-life ambition in the characters she played on screen, even in the 1930s, this narrative of boundless female desire for something other than conventional domestic security had no place in the promotion of a star in 1933. And so, as far as the movie press was concerned, Joan Crawford was a regular old girl who, in marrying the son of a superstar, had flown too close to the sun and gotten burned. Never mind the fact that this would-be Lady Icarus had been carrying on an affair with one of her co-stars for years. We'll get to that in our next installment of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod and find us on Instagram and Facebook, too. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, rate and review us there, and tell anybody you can about the show any way that you can. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>